Father in heaven, we bow before you this evening. We thank you, Lord, for a beautiful day that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy and uh, your love that you bestow upon us each and every day. Father, we praise you for your word, Father, that we can gather around and we can know truth and uh, we can grow from it, we can glean from it. And Father, we pray that your truth would affect us, that you would draw us close to you, that you would uh, help us to increase in knowledge. And uh, Father, may we just be faithful, Lord, to the gospel of Christ and uh, to what you have laid out for your churches. Lord, bless the rest of the service tonight. We ask that you would bless our prayer time also at the end, Lord. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So let me invite you to take your Bible to Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. This was our text last week, and I told you that uh, last week I had to uh, break up that first message uh, into two messages, and so that's what we're doing. We're going to look at part two today of this uh, opening introduction, really, to our study of uh, pillars of a biblical church, which is which is focused upon the five solas of the Reformation, those doctrinal principles uh, that are so important for us as Christians and as churches as well. Uh, so today's title is Reformation for Today's Churches, part two. And so if you missed part one, I think the notes are still back there. And uh, it's also on Sermon Audio. So let's just read our text and we'll look at some things together here tonight. Notice Paul's writing of the church in Rome and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, in our last message, and I'll just try to give a brief summary of what we kind of looked at, uh, just to bring you up to speed, but our last message, we saw some background concerning the Reformation era, uh, the five solas of the Reformation, and really what we see are some of the problems that are facing our churches today. Now, concerning the Reformation, we recall that it was a movement in the 15th and 16th centuries that uh, kind of sprung on forward, and uh, it's continued on with uh, some of the things that we see. And one of the um, prominent men who was used to spark the Reformation was Martin Luther. We've all heard of him, right? Martin Luther was uh, Martin Luther was uh, the man who uh, nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, in the 1500s, and uh, from that really sparked the Reformation. And his thesis that he nailed there, we understand that it wasn't completely theologically sound, but it was the beginning uh, of a reformation in which men would dig into the scriptures, they would come to see what the true gospel was, because they were entrenched in the Roman Catholic Church. They were in darkness. You'll hear of men like William Tyndale and John Calvin and John Knox, Ulrich Zwingli, uh, and many others throughout that era. And central to that movement was a conviction and stand on the authority, inerrancy, and sufficiency of Scripture alone. And from this stand, what do we find? We find what the gospel really is. If you're only, only entrenched in tradition, you'll not see what the gospel really is. You must see the gospel in light of the Scriptures. And so the undergirding principles of the Reformation are known as the five solas. These were Latin phrases that were expressed as the central tenets of the gospel and really the foundation for all other church practices. And these solas, just to remind you, are uh, five of them. Sola Scriptura, which is Scripture alone. Solus Christus, which is Christ alone. 
sola gratia, which is grace alone, sola fide, which is, or fide, which is faith alone, sola dea gloria, which is glory to God alone. Those are Latin phrases in which describe those doctrinal principles. Now, these principles weren't formalized like we know them today until later on from the Reformation, but they were the undergirding principles of the Reformation, and I believe they're doctrinal principles for us today. But notice, second, lastly, as we just introduction-wise can rehash a little bit of what we looked at last week in our opening message, we looked at some of the problems that we see in the landscape of churches today. And I basically narrowed this down just to two overarching things. And one was a shallowness of theology within local churches, a shallowness of theology. There's many who have not dug into the Scriptures any deeper than the point of their conversion. And uh, that is one of the detriments of, of, of the local church today is that we need men and women who have a deeper knowledge of God and of the gospel and of the word of God as a whole. A lack of knowledge of God and his word truly is detrimental to the gospel and the health of the local church. Uh, shallowness paves the way for all sorts of erroneous teachings and practices in the church. The second aspect we saw in another problem was that churches had become worldly in their practices, and that naturally flows from shallowness in theology, churches that were worldly in their practices. And uh, what we see, we see that uh, the world has infiltrated the church in many ways, and many churches do not have any clue that they have become worldly and carnal in what they believe in practice. So this idea of reformation it wasn't just something that was needed back in that day. It is something that really is an ongoing need among churches that are entrenched in worldliness and have not uh, solidified themselves in the gospel truth. So I believe that pillars in which uh, will help us stay biblical on the gospel and not conform to the world are the five solas. So we look at our text in Romans 12, and we recall what the word conformed means. What does it mean to be conformed to something? It means to form according to a pattern or mold, to form or model after something. And so it is the pattern of this world or this age that Paul calls Christians not to be conformed to. So there's an individual application for our own life with that, not to be conformed or molded by what's around us. But there's also a local church application to that that we ought to not be conformed by what we see in the world and culture and applying it to our Christianity. So, the reality is there's many churches that are conforming to the world in various ways, and it's important for us to recognize them and to stand strong on what is gospel truth and what the Scriptures teach us. And so tonight, I want to look primarily at some of the ways in which the world infiltrates the church or it, the church has patterned after the world. So notice in our notes the first point here tonight, and the bulk of the message is going to come from this, this section here. We see the patterns of this world in the churches, the patterns of this world, or you could say this age in the churches. And I went ahead and filled these in for you because if you're like me, if you hear a word and you don't really know how to spell it, I get mad because I just, I got to get a dictionary out, I got to make sure I got it right. And some of these words with the isms on the end, uh, they can uh, maybe, maybe be intimidating, but I, I want to describe some of these things to you. And I'll tell you, a great help who's helped me with this is James Montgomery Boyce's book on whatever happened to the gospel of grace. He really dives into a lot of these. He's, he's, he's been with the Lord for a few years now, uh, but back throughout his lifetime, he pointed out some things. But I bring some of these up to speed to even today's era uh, and what we see. So notice with me the first influence we find is the influence of secularism. 
the influence of secularism. Now, what is secularism? Secularism is a philosophy that does not see beyond the world, but operates as if this age is all there is. So, the term secular refers to not religious, not sacred, not spiritual. It's often used as an umbrella for all the other things we're going to look at. You say, well, something secular, it's all under the umbrella of what we would call as secularism. So essentially, it summarizes the mind and life of the world of our own time. Secularism focuses only on this present world and not so much on the world to come. And I have a quote here from R.C. Sproul describing this, and I put that in your notes for you to have. He says, for secularism, all life... Every human value, every human activity must be understood in light of this present time. What matters is now and only now, all access to the above and the beyond is blocked. There is no exit from the confines of this present world. The secular is all that we have. We must make our decisions, live our lives, make our plans, all within the closed area of this time, the here and now. Now, when you look at that description, do you see that in the world around us? That's how the world naturally lives, don't they? They live for the here and now. They live for what is experienced in the moment. They travel down their road of life, giving little to no thought of God, eternity, or what comes beyond the grave. They simply live for the moment. Now, Paul wrote considering the prospect of no resurrection, essentially no future beyond the grave, and he said if this prospect was true... He's basically wasted his time fighting with the beasts in Ephesus. But he also says in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Well, that's essentially how the world lives. They live for right now. That's a secular mindset. It leads one to discount the importance of God, the importance of salvation, of sanctification, judgment to come. Surely, if all there is is right now, then man must enjoy his carnality and just... Uh, live in the moment, right? Now, what happens when a church allows this mindset into it? When a church allows secular things to enter in, secular mindset, it places theology, the study and importance of God, on the back burner in order to appeal to the here and now, appeal to this present world, okay? It becomes a religious business, a building of its own kingdom at the expense of perishing souls all for worldly gain and pleasure. And thus you find some ways in which this happens. We look at many churches today, and what do you see they're filled with? They're filled with entertainment. They're filled with uh, pep talks, uh, godless forms of worship that really you can't differentiate it from uh, a rock concert. Uh, There's all sorts of outward secular means that have infiltrated the local church, and the church has made church about those things. So we're finding here is that, is that many have made Christianity a means of carnal enjoyment while appeasing their mind for the need of religion. That's, that's really what you find. Appeasing the mind for the need of religion, all in the name of Christ, but it's not true worship that God wants and what God has ordained for the church. This thinking, secular thinking, keeps one focused on here and now, Immediate gratification of the flesh in this age. For example, we see a man who went after this way. In 2 Timothy 4.10, we recall a man named Demas. You'll read of him in other passages of Scripture. He was a companion of Paul. But Paul, in his last letter that he wrote, what did he write about Demas? He said in 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas 
in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. I would hate to have that to be the description of me. In love with this present world, this present age, he left Paul and just, here I am. I'm living for right now instead of for the Lord. Now, we're not sure specifically what led Demas astray as far as his specific temptation, but we do know that the present world became his love. So I close this point with this, with a quote from Harry Blamires. He says, To think secularly is to think within a frame of reference bounded by the limits of our life on earth. It is to keep one's calculations rooted in this worldly criteria. To think Christianly is to accept all things with the mind as related directly or indirectly to man's central destiny as the redeemed and chosen child of God. So when you look at this, we're called not to think secularly. We need to think Christianly. Think Christianly. And so notice, secondly, we not only see the influence of secularism, but we see the influence of humanism. The influence of humanism as it creeps into the church. Now understand that from secularism really flows all the others, because secular is a broad description of all these other problems and influences we see in our age. But the influence of humanism, what is humanism? Humanism is a rationalistic outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. It's essentially looking at life, people, and practices apart from God and with a focus upon mankind, with a focus upon men. Now, as Christians, we're supposed to be the opposite, aren't we? We're to view everything in life through the lens of the glory of God. We're to view everything in life through the lens of God's divine program, of God's divine working. But humanism completely removes God from the equation and magnifies man. Now, we have a biblical example of someone who did this. His name was King Nebuchadnezzar, or Chadnezer. I don't know how to pronounce that right. I've heard preachers say it both ways, so I'll say it both just in case. Daniel 4 and verse 30, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he's looking at his kingdom and all his wealth and power and pomp, and he says, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? When you look at his quotation here, it is filled with humanistic thinking. It's all about man. It's all about him, right? He had humanistic thinking. And humanistic thinking essentially leads to the deification of self, making man divine, making him the center focus. But notice that we know this account, how that God would not tolerate such a thing from Nebuchadnezzar in this account. And what happened with this? Well, in Daniel 4, we find that God, uh, God would judge him and made him insane, causing him to act like a beast and live like a wild beast. His nails grew long. He was eating the grass of the ground. He just, all his glory was gone. But when that judgment was concluded, listen to his words in Daniel 4 and 34 and 35, if you have that in your Bible. At the end of the days, I, the end of the days of his judgment, Nebuchadnezzar lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. His reason returned to him. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? 
So Nebuchadnezzar at first said, oh, look what all I've done with the kingdom of Babylon. But then after his judgment, he comes to realize, look at what the Most High has done, that he is the one who is working in and through the kingdoms and men. So all glory goes to God. He was, he was rid of his humanistic thinking in this moment. But let's think for a moment, how is humanism influencing churches? Well, the answer is that mankind, man has been made the substance of the church's focus. In other words, the church exists for man, it's done for man, and it's to the glory of man. And a lot of this is done indirectly. They don't realize they're doing this, how man-centered they actually are. But essentially what you find is that many churches today, it's all about man. We see this in man-centered theology, such as Arminianism and the idolatry of Roman Catholicism. You can see it in other cults and religions, how that it's fully centralized upon what man is and what man can do. But then we also see it in man-centered church practices. What's the common question today? People ask the church, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? So that's the natural tendency is that man is looking at the church is that, okay, this has to be for me somehow, right? Well, it's not for us. It's for God. It's for Christ. The church has taken that question, what's in it for me, and molded herself to give man what he wants in the church to satisfy man. So the church's doctrine and practice becomes man-centered rather than God-centered, and that is rooted in humanistic thinking. And understand that that kind of thinking is detrimental to the gospel. It is detrimental to the local church. And why is that? Because the church exists for Christ. It exists through Christ, and it exists to Christ. It is not man's. The church is not man's. The worst thing a church can do is to seek to make its doctrine and practice fit the desires of sinful men. But yet that is one of the most common practices today. How, we can, how can we make the church more appealing to the outer man who does not know God and is unregenerate? Now, that's one thing I had to learn is that when we come to worship, it's not about us. It is all about God. And you understand that the worship service isn't even about trying to win the loss, although that is a means of winning the loss. The worship service is about the glory of God. It is about worship. It is about exalting Him, bringing glory to Christ. Now, through that and through the preaching of the gospel, yes, the lost are converted. But that is not the primary means of it. It is, a, it is something that comes as a result of it. So, humanism, humanistic thinking, is infiltrating churches. Letter C, the influence of relativism. Relativism. Now, what is relativism? Relativism is the doctrine or the teaching that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture, society, or historical context and are not absolute. That is so key there. Relativism, relativism believes that truth is not absolute, but rather it basically fluctuates with the culture, fluctuates with history, fluctuates with society. In other words, there's no absolute truth. Everything's just relative. But when you really follow that to its natural conclusion, if truth is relative, what can you actually learn? There's no such thing as real education and real learning if truth is relative, if it's fluctuating, if it's not absolute. And here's the sad reality is that the idea that truth is relative, it is permeating the younger generation coming up. 
Today, there are professors and universities teaching the next generation that truth is all relative, that it's not absolute. And we see this plainly before us with many, many of the battles that we face. You look, just for example, look at the transgender movement. Look at the whole question of what is a woman? Can men get pregnant? I mean, it's ludicrous, right? I mean, we, we see that it's ludicrous. But, but in the minds of a lot of people in our culture and society, they're genuinely puzzled by this. They're genuinely puzzled by this. What is a woman? Well, depends on how you define a woman. No, a woman is a woman. Same thing for every, any, any other thing that we could debate or talk about. Truth is absolute. It's not relative. So how is relativism influencing churches? Well, many professing Christians in the church now base truth on how they feel about it or what culture says about it. So in other words, the truth of the church should be determined on how I feel about it or how the culture outside perceives it or ordains it. Truth has become personalized and private rather than absolute and universal. In our own culture, what are we seeing? Facts have become opinions and opinions have become facts. We're seeing a reversal of what truth actually is. And this mindset has indeed infiltrated the church. You say, how? Well, I've spoken to several people about the Bible, about the gospel, about different things. And one of the common things I hear is, well, I just feel like God would never do this. Well, I just feel like God says this. And that kind of thing just drives me crazy. Because it doesn't matter how you feel about Scripture. Ben Shapiro has a famous saying. He says, facts don't care about your feelings. Well, I've, rever- I've changed that a little bit. I says, Scripture doesn't care about your feelings either. Scripture says what Scripture says because it is absolute truth. It is absolute truth. Uh, and, and truth does not change as the culture changes or as the mind of man changes. You see, if your feeling is what governs truth or culture what governs truth, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. But here's the reality. Scripture says what it says. It is not up for debate. It is not up for change. We are called to believe it and bow before it. Now, Paul said to to Timothy when he's instructing him about the church, he says in 1 Timothy 3.15, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And notice this description of the church. A pillar and buttress of the truth. So so what does the local church exist to do? She exists to be a pillar and uphold the truth. Not not any truth or just whatever the culture deems is truth or what we feel is truth. The church exists to uphold what is the truth, the absolute truth. Truth is absolute, not relative or subject to the culture or our feelings. So relativism must not be allowed in the local church, and yet we find it is influencing the local church in many ways. Letter, B, letter D, notice another influence is the influence of materialism. Now, what is materialism? Materialism is a tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort as more important than spiritual values. Now, we see materialism in various ways in our culture and essentially takes us back to secularism. It, it flows from that, the thinking that focuses on the here and now. And we see this mindset in those who who make it their life mission. All they want to do is be as rich as they can, have as much possessions as they can, be as comfortable as they can, be as famous as they can. The list could go on and on. It's about acquiring as much as you can in, in, in a worldly sense. But when we look at the Scriptures, we find that Jesus teaches the opposite. 
Jesus told the parable of a rich fool who had that mindset, a materialistic mindset in his heart. And he said, Luke 12, 19, he said, I, the, the rich man's the one who's saying this. He said, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's a materialistic mindset. But we know what happened with the result of that man, right? God said, this, this day your soul be required of you. He died, all his materialism, gone. Doesn't make any difference, right? He died and perished, having lived his life with the material. But the Christian perspective is the opposite of that, right? The Christian perspective is to be centrally focused, not on this world, but what? The world to come. The eternal. How many times has Paul emphasized that? If, you've been, if you're risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. That's Colossians 3, 1 and 2. So you find that principle for the Christian life. If anyone ever lived in such a way that was non-materialistic, but had the power to be uh, as materialistically prosperous as anyone, it was Jesus, right? But what did Jesus say about himself in his own life in ministry? In Matthew 8, 20, he said, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus didn't even own a pillow. He didn't own a boat. He didn't own all the things that we have today. But that was his life. He came into this world to, 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 to live in such a way so that he would die in our place sinlessly. So we see him emphasizing that. Now, this doesn't mean that it's wrong or sinful if the Lord blesses his children with material wealth. I don't want you to get that idea, all right? But it is wrong and sinful if they make that what they live for and trust in. 1 Timothy 6, 17, Paul says to them again, he says to Timothy, to instruct his congregation, as for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So if God blesses a Christian with, with great wealth, praise the Lord for that. But a Christian is not to dwell on that, to live for that, to make that is their, their trust. Now, how is materialistic mindset, how is materialism influencing the churches? This materialistic age has caused the church to make the gospel as if it is a product to be sold. We've all seen this in various forms. And if it's a product to be sold, surely there are sales techniques and methods to get the right response from sinners, right? This inevitably leads to the movement of trying to grow your church as big and fast as you can. There are many people swept into this church growth movement. And the church growth movement stems from the materialistic mindset, whether they realize it or not. There are seminars and conferences on how to best package the gospel to convert as many people as possible. And this naturally leads to more, con more conversions, quote-unquote, right? More baptisms, more memberships, bigger budgets, bigger offerings, bigger buildings, and maybe even a plaque on the wall of someone's great service. I'm telling you, I've, I've been around circles like that, and it just, knowing what I know now, it just makes me sick to my stomach. How the, the gospel of Christ is used in such a materialistic manner. Preachers play the number game and do all they can to have a greater number of professions, all at the expense of watering down the truth of the gospel. A church camp I used to attend, they would have these long, drawn-out invitations, singing Just As I Am for 45 years minutes, all trying to beg and get people to come to the altar so they had a decent-looking number of professions for the week. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with churches growing, and a healthy church should be growing as it evangelizes and makes disciples. But the goal of the church is not to grow as big and fast as we can. What is the goal of the church? The goal of the church is the glory of God through being spiritually healthy. Spiritually healthy. So the church must not allow a materialistic mindset to influence her in her doctrine and practice. Letter E, we see the influence of pragmatism, and this is a major one too. We can see these in various circles here. What is pragmatism? Pragmatism is an approach that evaluates theories or beliefs in terms of the success of their practical implication. So it's determining truth by practical results. We see this philosophy in the industrial industry, right? The goal of industrial pragmatism is to find the fastest, least expensive way of producing products and getting things done. Now, this is not necessarily bad from an industrial and business standpoint, as long as it doesn't violate moral standards or cheat and take shortcuts. This philosophy has brought great improvement to many things for our homes and stores and vehicles and our way of life as a whole, right? I mean, we're all thankful for the car we rode to church in. I mean, a car is a whole lot more efficient and faster than a horse. Thankful for those kind of developments. At the same time, industrial pragmatism may have negative effects too, especially if shortcuts are taken that weaken the quality of the product or the business. When we think about this in a spiritual sense, industrial pragmatism may have temporal negative impacts on life in the world, but spiritual pragmatism has eternal consequences. The church is not industrial and it's not a business. It's a living organism, an institution founded upon absolute truth that can't be altered. So the mindset of pragmatism, it's overwhelmingly adopted in many churches today. And how is it influencing churches? Churches have begun to try new things, often unbiblical things, as a means of reaching people. Now, if their pragmatism draws in people and supposedly maybe has a positive effect on their life then what they're doing, it must work, right? It must be true. It must be okay to use. For example, you see many using, uh, like I said earlier, making the worship of the church more like a worldly fashion, uh, promising blessings on those who attend, dumbing down the gospel just to get responses. But here's the principle and truth with this. What we win people with is what will be required to keep them. If they are one with carnal means, you have to keep up carnal means to keep them. And then when you finally preach the gospel, see you later. But if they are one with the gospel, it is the gospel that will keep them. And that is why no matter what, Sunday after Sunday, we preach the gospel. Because it's only the gospel that's the power of God to save sinners and truly affect them for all of eternity. Michael Horton comments on this as well and says, if we seek to justify Christianity on pragmatic grounds, ours will continue to be just another self-help, self-improvement program. So it is God's word alone that must be our guide to all things we believe and practice in the church. And so it is timeless truth for God's people. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 40 verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Letter F, we see the influence of mindlessness. Now, this isn't an ism, so this is a little unique word, but this is something that is uh, happening in our culture and even in the churches as well. What is mindlessness? It is when something is acting or done without justification, with no concern for the consequences. Essentially, it's not thinking through something and evaluating something in light of what truth is. 
not thinking through it. Now, this is essentially why Paul urges the Romans in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. He says, don't be conformed to the world. Don't pattern yourself after the world or this age. And how do you counteract that? By the renewing of your mind, right? Renewing the way you think. Renewing the thought process. Thinking through things. Now, now Paul wants them to consider that, especially in light of the truth of God. He warned Timothy of those in 2 Timothy 3, 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. There are many who follow after any appearance of godliness because they haven't thought through whether it's of God or not or evaluated it in light of Scripture. Not everything under the Christian umbrella is actually Christian. Not everything under the gospel word is actually gospel. So one of the greatest issues in our culture today is that not too many people think about things. They just accept and go, accept and go. Thinking, thinking, thinking is something that must happen in our hearts and lives. Our culture has caused us to be so dumbed down and busy with other things that we don't have time to think about certain realities. We think about the influence of, say, TV or entertainment or social media or phones or all sorts of different electronics, things that we have. They, 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 many times they have negative effects on our lives, causing us not to think through things. Now, this is not to say that those things are evil or cannot be used for good. I enjoy a good television show. I enjoy watching a basketball game. I use social media. But the point is, is that if we're not careful, some of these things can make us so thoughtless, we're just kind of wandering without thinking through what's actually happening. So how is mindlessness influencing churches? Well, Christians have become prone not to think through certain spiritual teachings. And with less thinking and more entertainment in the culture, church services has been geared towards that way, being more entertaining and shortened in length. So what we find is that Today, many times, good preaching is determined on the basis of if the preacher has enough charisma to make someone laugh and enjoy themselves the whole service. That's not what preaching's about. Now, there's nothing wrong with a dose of humor here and there. But that's not what it's about, right? I know there's such things as long-winded, boring preachers, such as myself. But at the same time, I have a hard time when... Christians can easily sit for two or three hours for a movie or a sports game, but they can't sit and listen to the Word of God for an hour that has eternal truth that affects their life and soul. We, we must get back to being able to, to take in the Word of God. And I'm not trying to justify my preaching of near an hour on Sunday or lately. I never did that before I came here. So, so Harold ruined me. I'm going to blame him. But, but I do believe that when it comes to a church service, that if a text is in view, adequate time ought to be given to understand the text. That it shouldn't be rushed for the sake of, well, I'm hungry, or, you know, I've got, got this on my mind. Our culture around us has made us become mindless, and it is influencing Christians to be the same way within the church, where we just, we don't think through things. We don't give time to listen and observe and meditate. So there, there, there are other ways probably in which the world is influencing the church very subtly. But these stick out to me. These stick out to me, and they, they stick out throughout several, many generations. So the patterns of this world, understand, they have this central idea, agenda, excuse me, they have a central agenda for the church. And what is the central agenda of that for the church? To distort the gospel and deter the church from biblical practices. 
That is what these patterns do. James Montgomery Boyce comments on this and says, The chief problem with the evangelical church is that we have been, we have been increasingly conformed to the world's patterns and that if we are to see a new reformation, we will have to break away from these patterns and seek to recover the authentic biblical gospel, learning again to think and act in God's way. So how is it that we can protect ourselves and our church from the patterns of the world influencing us and keeping a pure biblical gospel? And I believe the answer to that are these five solas. They are five doctrinal principles. They're doctrinal principles that uh, are timeless principles. Timeless principles. So I want to summarize these very briefly because the rest of the series is going to be focusing on each one of these. But notice with me, number two, the pillars of a biblical church. And here's here they are. Scripture alone is as authority for faith and practice. Scripture alone for authority and faith and practice. Now, this may seem redundant point to us um, who already know this pretty well. I, I believe that we're grounded in this very truth here at Lee Creek, um, that Scripture alone is what we believe and practice, and it's our authority. So when the, re- when the Reformers used the word sola scriptura, they were affirming the Bible's authority alone for all faith and practice. The authority... For faith and practice is not in the church, not in the preacher, not in the pope, not in tradition, or any other thing that you can name. Scripture alone is the inerrant, sufficient authority for the church. A church that does not believe this compromises the gospel and fails to be the church that Christ has called them to be. God's word alone is the church's authority. Paul spelled this out plainly for Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be, may, may, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what does that tell us briefly? That Scripture is our whole guide for truth. And this immediately conflicts with the patterns of the world. Quote by Tim Challies off his website, his blog. He says, Pragmatism and sola scriptura must stand in opposition to each other, as each claims to be the key to determining truth. As Christians, we need to decide if we're going to depend upon Scripture as the absolute standard of truth or if we will determine truth by consequences. You can't have both. You can't have Scripture alone and pragmatism and humanistic thinking and mindlessness and all these things. It must be Scripture alone, which leads to the arrest of these because Scripture alone is the most important Because it's through Scripture alone that we have knowledge of the rest, of Christ, and of grace, and of faith, and of the glory of God. Letter B, Christ alone is Lord and Savior. See, the Roman Catholic Church, they spoke much about Christ, but they had added to Christ human merits, traditions, as part of salvation. So when the formers would say, solus Christus, they were affirming that only Christ and His redemptive work on the cross has accomplished redemption. Nothing else is added to that, and nothing can be taken away from that. So proclaiming Christ alone repudiates the error of man's works and the church's contribution. As Peter said in Acts 4, 12, there's no salvation. There is salvation in no one else, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ alone is Savior and Lord in His redemptive work. Let us see, grace alone is the basis of salvation. Grace means that no human has any claim to their salvation. So by proclaiming sola gratia, the reformers were denying that human merits or means could cause faith in a sinner. It was only by grace alone. Grace is the undeserved and unmerited 
unearned favor of God. Because man is bound in chains of their sinful nature, there's nothing they can do to affect or contribute to their salvation. Like Jonathan Edwards said, man, uh, uh, you contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary. And that's exactly right. Ephesians 2.5, we'll be looking at this Sunday. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God, He made us alive together with Christ. And look at this note by Paul, by grace you've been saved. So salvation is provided by grace and is experienced by grace. Letter D, faith alone is the means of justification. The Reformers were always, always beating this drum. To say sola fide is to say only by faith is a sinner saved, made right with God, that he is justified. And faith, we understand, it is a firm persuasion, a confidence, a trusting of oneself to someone else. This faith that we speak of is a trust in Christ alone for salvation. And it is only through faith alone that a sinner is justified before God, not by any means of the church or tradition. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And while faith is a personal trust by the sinner, faith itself is a gift of grace given to the sinner that the sinner then expresses. It becomes his once he's received it. We'll see that in Ephesians as well. So without faith, there is no salvation. Letter E, the last pillar, last sola, glory to God alone in all things. This truly summarizes the solas. And the whole gospel and these pillars we're looking at. Why? Because God alone has given us the scriptures. God alone has provided redemption in Christ. God alone has manifested his grace towards us. God alone has granted us faith in his son. And given this truth, we learn that all of the gospel, all of salvation, all of who the church is, all of what the church does is to the glory of God. If we miss this point, we miss the chief cause of everything. Romans eleven thirty six. For of from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So when the reformers would say soli deo gloria, they were proclaiming that God alone receives receives glory in all things, and that must be our stand today. So the formalizing of these five solas they came about through the Reformation over the years weren't necessarily invented at that time, but they were formalized like many systems of doctrine through the years. They weren't new. These were principles that have been believed by God's people throughout history. But as we consider these pillars of a biblical church, let's remember that they are timeless pillars that mark biblical churches, whether a church has them formalized or not. church doesn't have to have them written on the wall or anything like that to be truly practicing and living them, but I think it's good to see them as they are. And as we've seen in these patterns of this age and how they are affecting churches, we need to know them and uphold them faithfully. These pillars are what help guard us and keep us on the right track, proclaiming a true and biblical gospel to the glory of God alone and keeping our church practices as they need to be. So I pray that this was a, was a help to you to just see some of the ways in which the world is influencing the church the patterns of this age and why these pillars are important. As we go forward, uh, we'll look at each of these solas individually um, and give more depth to them.